following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Well, as we begin this morning, uh, we're going to resume our journey through the Minor Prophets. We're going to be in Habakkuk today. Um, And I'd like to introduce our topic this morning by reading to you a prayer. It begins like this. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked him and the righteous, so that justice is perverted. This is indeed a a bold prayer. It's an honest prayer. And it's a prayer is coming from a man who's looking at the world around him and seeing a world that just doesn't make any sense. He sees all the evil. He sees the injustice. He sees the, the crime and the hurt and the abuse. And at the same time, he sees what appears to him to be a God who doesn't seem to be doing anything about it. And I must admit, there have been several times in my life when I have prayed such a prayer. One time that I remember vividly, I think I shared this some time ago with you, but I was standing in a hospital room next to the crib of this little three-year-old girl. She was lying there just staring up at the ceiling. There was junk coming out of her nose and drool from her mouth. And I leaned over to the crib and I, I smiled and, and looked in her eyes and I said, hi, hi, sweetie, what's your name? She didn't respond at all, just sat there continuing to, to stare up. And so I even tried my Donald Duck voice. Um, maybe you'll get to hear that someday, but I tried that with her. <laughs> and no response. She just continued to, to stare up. Her eyes didn't even move. She was fixated on the ceiling above her. And when the nurse came in, I asked her what... What was this little girl's condition? What was she suffering from? And she told me that uh, she had severe brain damage. She was essentially in a vegetative state and had been that way for some time. And I asked her what happened. And she said, well, the reason she was in that condition was that when she was an infant, her father got angry with her one night because she was crying and he shook her violently, causing the brain damage. And so here I'm, I'm looking at this precious little girl lying there in a cold hospital room, unable to respond. In fact, she had been orphaned by that point, so she had no family. She was there all alone, except for the the nurses. And all because of what? Because some heartless jerk could not control his temper. And I can still see this little girl in my mind's eye. I can still picture her. I know exactly what she looks like. Because in that moment, when I heard the nurse... And what she said and her words ringing in my ears, I was angry. And I was angry at God. So why? How can you let this happen to this little girl? How is this okay? How could you let her suffer because of a wicked father? Perhaps you've had these same kinds of questions. Maybe you've experienced something in your own life or seen something that just, you don't know what to do with it. How God could let that take place. 
Help me understand, God. Job asked these questions. David asked these questions a lot. The other psalmists asked them. Many of the prophets asked them. In fact, in Luke 13, there's an example where people came up to Jesus and they told him about a massacre that had happened at the hands of Pilate. The implication is, well, how did this happen? How did you let this happen? And this is the place that we find the prophet Habakkuk. For it was his prayer that I read to you earlier when it opened our time this morning. In fact, that's how he began his book, with that very prayer. If you're not in Habakkuk yet, just go to Matthew and turn about five books to the left and you'll get there. We don't know anything about Habakkuk. We don't know anything about his family. We don't know anything about his ministry. We don't know anything about his background or anything about his history. But there's one thing that we do know, and that is he wrestles with the same He wrestled with the same thing we wrestle with when it comes particularly to looking at God's world. And he wasn't afraid to ask God about it. And what's so unique and really wonderful about this book of Habakkuk is that God gives him an answer. God gives him an answer. He gives him an answer to questions that few would dare ask out loud, but I'm thankful that Habakkuk did ask them. And so in the next few weeks, we're going to go through this little book together and see what God has to say about something theologians like to call theodicy. And that is that the the question of why a good and just and sovereign God would allow evil to happen in his world. And in Habakkuk, we find God's very own response to that question. But before we look there, let's go to the Lord and ask him to give us understanding on this very difficult issue. Lord, I do pray this morning that, that God, your word would be clear to us. Lord, may your spirit give us understanding. For Father, this is a difficult topic. It's, it's a struggle. It's, it's emotional. It, it, Lord, it just, uh, really goes beyond our understanding. We cannot understand it without you giving us that understanding. And I pray, Lord, this morning that only what is true be spoken. And Lord, that as we look to Habakkuk, you would show us who you are and, Lord, how to, how to look at these issues that we face. Pray these things in the name of our Savior. Amen. Well, after Habakkuk's very brief title, which he simply says, the oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw, he then opens with the prayer that I read to you earlier. Really, it's a lament, right? How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not save? Will not hear. How, how long will I cry for violence and you do not save? And it's from his prayer that it's apparent that Habakkuk is living in very dark and difficult times in Judah. We're not given any specifics about when, but it is likely during the reign of King Jehoiakim. He reigned just before Judah was taken into exile in Babylon around 605 BC. That was the first wave. And Jehoiakim was the son of the godly King Josiah. If you remember Josiah, he was the king when the, the, the word of God had been found in the temple, had been lost for almost two generations. Well, Josiah was a godly man, and he led incredible spiritual reform in the kingdom of Judah. But his son was the polar opposite of his dad. In fact, Jehoiakim, Josiah's son, he was the one, if you remember in Jeremiah, when Jeremiah handed him the scroll of the word of God and he took out a sharp instrument. Remember what he did with it? He carved it up, and then he had it thrown in the fire. That's Jehoiakim. 
He was, it was said of him in 2 Kings 24, 4, that uh, he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. In fact, Jehoiakim was the only king of Judah who was known to have put one of God's prophets to death. So he was quite a specimen. And from this kind of wickedness, you can imagine how that influenced the people. In fact, when he took the throne, it did not take much time for Jehoiakim to, to completely unravel the spiritual reform that his father had brought about. From Habakkuk's prayer, we see, like king, like people. For in it, he describes the, the moral decay of the society in Judah. And he, he describes that moral decay in verse 3 with six terms, three, three word pairs. The first pair of words is iniquity and wickedness. That speaks of the sin, the wrongdoing, trouble, evil. The second pair is destruction and violence. Those are words that tell of the devastation, the ruin that's brought about from the cruel treatment that people had towards one another. The third pair of terms, strife and contention. Those are both uh, legal terms, actually. Strife is the idea of taking others to court. Contention is legal conflict. And so together, all all six of these words, they're describing a society that's fraught with violence, that is permeated by injustice, where there is violence and fighting and conflict and, and people standing up for their rights, abuse and injustice. In fact, in these verses, you see the words violence and injustice repeated several times. That's true in the whole book of Habakkuk. That was the world in which he lived. And indeed, he lived in a time that really doesn't sound a whole lot different than ours. In fact, I looked up the FBI statistics from 2012. In the United States, there were, in that year, 15,000 murders, 85,000 rapes, at least those that were reported, 350,000 robberies, and over three-quarters of a million aggravated assaults. That comes to about a chance of one in 300 that one of those things is going to happen to you in the coming year. In Los Angeles, that number is more like one in 200. It's everywhere. We have evil in our midst. We live in evil times. In fact, just this Thursday, I, I read about uh, two people who were beating up a former roommate until he was convulsing. He was coughing up blood. And the sad irony of that was that all of them were members of an anti-violence group. In fact, one of them who was doing the beating was still wearing a Stop the Violence t-shirt when she got arrested. They had been at a group meeting together just the night before. And that would be funny if it weren't so tragic. Look at the news any given day, right? You can look at it today. What are you going to find there? You're going to see all kinds of terrible acts of violence and abuse and immorality, extortion, horrible atrocities, injustice. So over 400,000 children in the foster care system in the United States. 400,000. And why do you think those kids are there? It's something they chose to participate in. This is a new children enrichment program. No, they're there because of neglect and abuse. 400,000. 20,000 or more in L.A. County alone. In fact, I read in our state in California, something like one in 50 children is in the foster care system. One million abortions performed annually in this country. And I bring this up a lot, and I think sometimes we can be numbed by these numbers, but 57 million babies have been murdered since Roe v. Wade. I mean, what would you think if Planned Parenthood lined up a bunch of babies on the sidewalk and shot them? Do you think that would cause a stir? Yet that's happening 
all the time. So like Habakkuk, we cry out, how long, O Lord? How long are you going to let these kinds of things happen? Why are they taking place? How can you tolerate it? Why are you making us look upon such evil things? America has seen better days, just like Judah had in the reign of Josiah, but but those days are fading. And Habakkuk indicates here, he's been asking God for a long time, a long time. He says, how long, O Lord, will I cry out for help? You see, what really bothered Habakkuk was not that God failed to hear, but that to him, God seemed to be failing to act. We can identify with Habakkuk, can't we? I mean, we pray for an end to abortion. How many of you have, have prayed that at least some point? We pray for an end to abortion. We, we pray for God to empty the foster care system. We pray for revival in our land, for the salvation of loved ones, for a dying friend, for wayward children. And we pray for purity in our nation, for godly leaders. You're praying for this election, right? We pray for these things, and we've prayed for a long time. Yet there seems to be no response. And what makes it so hard and what makes it so difficult is not that we don't know God, but but because we do. And like Habakkuk, we know God to be compassionate and kind. We know that he is holy and just. We, we know that he is good and loving, that he is sovereign and all-powerful. We, we know that he is merciful and gracious, that he hates sin, that he hates injustice. We know these things, and, and that's really what brings the problem, doesn't it? It's because we believe these things. It's because we know who God is. That, that is what makes it so perplexing. That is what makes it so difficult. And that is exactly Habakkuk's dilemma. Old Testament scholar Bo Heflin said, Life's injustices troubled Habakkuk greatly. As a careful observer of life, he could not harmonize the evil he saw around him with his concept of God as good, just, and sovereign. Jeremiah wrestled with this as well. Jeremiah lived in the same time period as Habakkuk. He says in Jeremiah 12:1, Righteous are you, O Lord, that I would plead my case with you. Indeed, I would discuss matters of justice with you. Why has the way of the wicked prospered? Why are all those who deal in treachery at ease? See, Jeremiah is saying, I, I know who you are, God. You're righteous. I just don't get this. I don't understand. And that's essentially what Habakkuk is saying in his prayer. But thankfully, Habakkuk's prayer does not go unanswered. God responds. And we see his response in verse 5, where he says, Look among the nations. Observe. Be astonished. Wonder. Behold, I'm doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces move forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings and rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on. But they will be held guilty. They whose strength is their God. 
So in God's response here, he he begins it rather abruptly. Verse 5, we see these four short commands that he gives. Look, observe, be astonished, wonder. And what's interesting is these four commands in the original Hebrew are actually, they're second person plural pronouns, meaning he's speaking not just to Habakkuk, otherwise he would have used singular. But these are, he's speaking to all the people. And he's telling all of them, look, observe, I want you to see what I'm about to do. God tells the people here that they needed to hold on to their hats because something was going to happen they would have never expected. Something was going to take place they wouldn't have believed unless they'd seen it with their own eyes. And just what was that something? Notice he says in verse 6 that he was bringing to power a group of people called the Chaldeans. In Hebrew, the word is the Kazdim. Uh, they were descendants of Kesed, who was a nephew of Abraham. And they had come into the land, the region of Babylon, several centuries before, and they settled there. The Assyrians had subjugated them for, for a period of time, probably about 100 years before Habakkuk's day. But, but a new Babylonian empire began to rise from these Chaldeans. And it was under King Nabopolassar in 626 B.C. when these Chaldeans began to rise in prominence. With the help of the Medes, they were the ones that wiped out the empire of Assyria. Remember, Assyria was a pretty vast and fierce and powerful empire. And when Nabopolassar's son, you've probably heard of this guy, Nebuchadnezzar, when he came to the throne, Babylon swept through the Middle East like nothing that had ever been seen before. It was unprecedented. In fact, within the course of just one year, people of Babylon had... Uh, defeated and taken over Egypt, Syria, Palestine, and all the nations around them within the course of just one year. Nebuchadnezzar was probably one of the most incredible and um, uh, wise generals, commanders that the world has ever seen. In fact, under him, these Babylonians were lethal. They were efficient. They were overwhelming. They subjugated nation after nation. They exterminated Many, many peoples. And it is that kind of speed, that kind of ruthlessness, that kind of power that that God is describing here in his response in these verses. In fact, in verse 6, he says that they are a fierce and impetuous people. Those are words that carry the idea of, of they were cruel. They were impulsively violent. Nothing impeded their progress. They took whatever they wanted from whomever they wanted, whenever they wanted. And nobody was going to stop them. God goes on to say in verse 7 that they are dreaded, they are feared, they are terrifying. Yeah, (laughs) their justice proceeds from them, he goes on to say. And that is, they decide for themselves what's right. They are a law unto themselves. In verse 8, God accentuates their military prowess as he uses these illustrations from nature to describe what this army is like, what these people are like, that their, their horses are swift like leopards, that that they assault with an eagerness and a greediness like a a wolf at night who hasn't eaten all day. Their stamina is impressive, like a horse who can travel great distances. And and she attacks, Babylon attacks like a, a bird of prey swooping in on an unsuspecting varmint, swooping it up before it even knows what happened. Verses 9 through 11, God describes the Chaldeans as this this army marching forward as one with little resistance, gathering up nation after nation and people after people like sand in a bucket. They fear no king. They run from no general. And they sweep through like wind. Now, as we step back from these verses, 
This is an extraordinary description of Babylon, not only in the words themselves, but also considering who is speaking them. This is God's description. And Habakkuk gets the point. Because at first you might say, well, why, why did he respond this way? I'm lamenting about what's happening here in Judah. And you're talking about these guys over here and just how fierce they are. But see, Habakkuk made the connection. God says, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. Habakkuk knew what that meant. In fact, in verse 12, he says he understood that God had appointed them to judge, that he had established these Chaldeans to correct. And you know, there's great irony in God's response here because because remember, Judah was a violent people. They had been violent against one another. And so God says here, he's going to raise up a violent people against them. Habakkuk had decried the injustice going on in the land of Judah. And God says he would send a people from whom there is no law. They are a law to themselves. And what makes these verses here, verses 5 through 11, so important. that This is God's response to Habakkuk's lament. Because again, remember the concern Habakkuk brought before God? How can you let these things be going on? How can you tolerate this evil in the world? How can you force me to see such things? And then God gives him... A response, but his response is not exactly answering the question, is it? In God's response, he's telling Habakkuk to focus on certain truths. There are three key principles that, that I see in his response here. Three key truths that we need to understand in regards to this issue of theodicy. And the first is this. God judges sin. He's saying to Habakkuk here in so many words, yes, Habakkuk, I see what is happening. I know what is going on. I know what the people have done, and I will respond. I will bring consequences. Their sin will not go unanswered. They have been violent. They've been unjust. And so they will fall into the hands of a violent and unjust people. And God reminds them here of something, beloved, and reminds us at the same time that God will do right. He will do what is right. He will respond. He will deal with every evil in this world. There's not one sin that God is not going to, to not respond to. It may not be in the timetable we want. It may not be in the way we want or would expect. But it will happen. God will judge sin. He will. And that's one emphasis and theme here in regards to his response to Habakkuk. God will judge sin. We have to remember something as we cry out, as we lament, as we desire to see God respond. We have to remember this. That God was patient with us, wasn't he? We have to remember that we, too, deserve God's judgment. We, too, would be in the category of the wicked. We, too, have sinned against God. We've been unjust. We've been violent. We've been immoral. We've been unloving, harsh, arrogant, either in deed or in thought or probably both. We too have sinned against God. And when you confess your sin, when you acknowledge to him, when you agree with God, yes, Lord, I am part of this class of the wicked. I have sinned against you. I have rebelled against your word. When we admit that to God, when we confess it to him, when we acknowledge that we deserve his judgment for that sin, the punishment in eternity for hell, when we ask God for mercy, how does God respond? What does he do? If it's a genuine confession, he grants mercy, right? He had mercy on you. He showed you mercy, forgave you. God will judge sin. 
every sin. And do you know where that judgment falls? It either falls upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on a cross as payment for sin, or it will fall upon you. If you have not repented, then you will pay for your sin yourself. If you have, if you put your trust in Christ, then He has already paid it for you. God will judge sin. He will judge all sin. And that's one thing He reminds us here in Habakkuk. A second thing God shows us is not only does He judge sin, but He is sovereignly at work in bringing about justice. Beloved, when we see evil taking place in this world and we're tempted to think, God, are are you just not paying attention? Are you a passive observer? Do you have a plan in all this? We've got to remind ourselves of something that he tells Habakkuk here. God's always at work. Verse 5 says there, I am doing something. Or literally, God says, I am working a work. And the tense there of the verb has this idea of it's ongoing activity. God's response here wasn't something where Habakkuk brings up his concerns and and God then says, oh, you're right, Habakkuk, these people are sinning. What am I going to do about that? About the Assyrians, they worked before. No, they're kind of weakening now. I know, this guy Nebuchadnezzar, he's a pretty strong leader. Look, these these Chaldeans, I think I'll use them. See, that's not the picture here at all. It isn't as if... Habakkuk's bringing something to God's attention and then he responds. God says here, no, I am have been at work and I'm continuing to be at work. I'm carrying out my plan. I'm working a work. God says in, here in verse 6, I've been raising up, not I will raise, not I'm thinking about raising. He says, I have been raising up a people, the Chaldeans. You see, while Habakkuk was crying out, To God, all those months and years, God was working. In fact, God had been starting that work hundreds of years before when the Chaldeans came into the land and He began to raise them up because God had a plan. He had a plan He was sovereignly executing in history. You know, history is kind of like... You remember those clocks uh, that used to tell time and they had these two little sticks on them that kind of moved around? You've seen those before, right? If you ever open one of those up and you look behind it, especially the older ones, there's all these switches and gears and all these moving parts going around. Well, history is like that. There's all these complicated moving parts behind the face of the clock, but they all work in tandem to keep the hands of the clock moving in the direction they're supposed to move to accurately tell the time that they are telling. And we need to be reminded that that in all things, no matter what happens, no matter what we see on the face of that clock, remind yourself that the master clockmaker is at work. And he's moving history according to his plan, not ours. In fact, it's a plan he's been very open about. In Ephesians 1.9, he tells us what that plan is. When he says there, through the Apostle Paul, in all wisdom and insight, God makes known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of times to unite all things in him, that's in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You see, God God is moving history. He's not moving in history. He's moving history. You've probably heard the phrase uh, that uh, uh, time marches on. I think it's more accurate to say God marches on. This is His world and His history. And He is orchestrating time and events, people to bring all things to one end. And that is, as He says here in Ephesians, to bring all things under subjection to Christ. 
That is where history is moving. That is God's plan. That is what he is doing in orchestrating every single event to that end. To march history forward so that at the end of the day, at the end of time, Jesus Christ would be exalted. So each and every event that takes place, even the evil things that we see, God is using those things in order to bring about that purpose to lift up his son. Amen? That's where history's moving. That is the ultimate plan. That's what God is doing. And we may not see how each and everything fits into that, especially some of these horrible and terrible things that we see in history. But somehow, and I don't know how, but God does, somehow each and everything He is using to move history forward to that day when Jesus Christ is exalted. In fact, isn't that what Philippians 2, 8 describes? Where it says there that God's speaking of Christ again through Paul, that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's where he's moving history. And notice there how the cross is connected to that. In fact, the cross was part of God's plan all along. It says in Acts 2.23, Peter said that this man, Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Again, God moving history and the cross being a key pinnacle point in that history so that Jesus Christ would not only die for the redeemed, but that he would then be lifted up and exalted and that all creation would be brought under him. That all creation would recognize he is the exalted Christ. That all would acknowledge that. And so when you see things that have gone awry in this world, remind yourself. This is part of God's plan in history. And again, how this connects to that and how this connects to that, that may not make sense. And this side of heaven, we may not understand specific things. Job, right? He was never given the full explanation, at least as we know in Scripture, of why the things happened as they did in his life. He was never told. But it was all part of God's plan. And again, just know, somehow, some way. Everything, even evil itself, God will use to exalt Jesus Christ. And so when evil seems to triumph over good and when, when wickedness seems to be going unanswered, when, when you see things around you that just don't make any sense, when trials come and they don't seem to let up, when, when life deals you a very heavy blow, when you come under great suffering, rest in knowing this. Rest in knowing that God's at work. He's at work. Just like that watch. We don't see what's going on behind it. But there's great activity. And he will use again even evil things to bring that about. That verse I read to you earlier that Peter said, Acts 2.23, This man delivered over to you by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And then Peter said, This man that you delivered over, God's plan, you were the ones that nailed him to the cross by the hands of godless men. You see, God used the sin of, of Pilate, of Caiaphas, of the soldiers, of the people who wanted Jesus' death. He used all of those evil, horrible, the most unjust act, the most greatest sinful act that has ever happened is to take the Son of God and murder Him as a criminal. 
And how did God use that event? Right? His plan marching forward to lift up Jesus. And he used that horrific day to accomplish the most wonderful work of redemption in history. And now if he can do that, he can take any circumstance and bring about his purposes to exalt his son in this world. As hard as it may be to see in some situations, as hard as it may be to make that connection, or I don't know how in the world this little girl lying in that crib is going to do that. But you see, I don't see the end from the beginning, do I? I only see things on this side of heaven, and I have a very limited view. God doesn't. He has the big picture in mind. He sees it all. But what he had to say to Habakkuk really perplexed him. It it didn't alleviate his concerns. He prayed this prayer of lament, and he's asking God why, and then God responds, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. And Habakkuk didn't go, oh, okay, good. No, he was actually more confused after God's response than before. He was more perplexed. Look at verse 12. This is where Habakkuk responds, and he says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge. And you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away with their net, gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they offer sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net. Because through these things their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay the nations without sparing? Can you see what's perplexing Habakkuk here? He, he he expresses this concern in verses 1 to 4, or verses 2 to 4, over God's apparent inactivity regarding Judah's sin. And now that God's describing to him the action he's going to take, he's, he's saying, well, wait a minute, let me understand this. I don't get this. His, his confusion was magnified. And he again wrestles with this, not because he doesn't know God, but because he does. Back verse 12, Habakkuk is rehearsing what he knows to be true about God. He affirms that God is eternal. That is, that he is steadfast, constant. He's the unchanging one who's not bound to history. He describes God as the Holy One, the, the one who is overly, he's transcendent over all of his creation. He is perfect. He is pure. He is without sin. And notice here, as he says these things, he doesn't just say God. He says, my God. He doesn't just say the Holy One. He says, my Holy One. He's emphasizing there, he understands that relationship. He refers to God by his personal name, Yahweh. That's Lord there in caps. He's he's focusing on God's character. He's talking about their covenant, their relationship. That's why he says we will not die. He's confident God would not destroy the faithful. But then in the middle of verse 12, Habakkuk says, you, O Yahweh, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. And it's here where I think Habakkuk's perplexity begins, because based on what he says in verse 13 and after that, I don't think these two verses or these two statements in verse 12 are a declaration 
just a declaration of God's sovereignty. I think what he's saying here is, oh, Yahweh, you've appointed them to judge. Oh, rock, you have established them to punish. I think Habakkuk, he's he's a little incredulous here. He's like he's cleaning out the wax in his ear saying, did I hear you right on this one? You're going to use those people to deal with us? Notice in the very next line, as he speaks of God's purity and his justice, that he can't approve of evil, that he can't tolerate wickedness. He then says, so why are you looking favorably on the treacherous? Why are you silent when the wicked overpower the righteous? You see, again, Habakkuk's theology wasn't matching up with what he saw in God's actions. How can a God that I know is holy and pure and righteous, how can and that can that God put up with evil? And more than that, how can he allow this wicked and evil nation to empower? Or how can he be empowering them, allowing them to commit evil? And more than that, how could he ordain for that nation to be the one that would punish Judah? Yeah, Judah is sinful, he's saying, but she's at least more righteous than these guys. See, again, Habakkuk is wrestling here with the Odyssey. How could God be okay with this? How could he endorse it? How could this be his plan? Verses 14 to 17, Habakkuk, he conveys Judah's helpless plight by before these ruthless Chaldeans is describing this picture of fish caught in a net where Judah and the nations are the fish and the net, the fisherman, is Babylon. There's some question here as to Who's being referred to at the beginning of verse 15? You can see there, if you have a New American Standard, uh, the Chaldeans is, is in italics. You see that? That just means that the translators have put that in. It's not in the original Hebrew. Kesdim is not there. They are just inferring what it what is from the context. Literally, it it's, should be the pronoun he. That's the subject here. That's how the ESV translate it translates it but given the context here given the fact god has already said earlier that he's going to raise up the chaldeans and now he's talking about these people it it seems clear that the chaldeans are indeed the subject here and they're described as a fisherman they're described as a fisherman who's drawing in the nations like like a net particularly judah they're helpless fish once they're caught in the net that's it i mean it's not like in nemo right you know where Nemo, all the fish, they're talking to each other, and then they say, hey, let's go this way, and they start pulling against the net, and that's how they break free. You remember that? That doesn't really happen. That was a cartoon. Fish don't really do that. Once they're caught in the net, that's it. They're done for. And that's why Habakkuk uses this illustration that these Babylonians are so fierce, they come through, and they're like, he uses two terms for a net here. One's that big dragging net that Several people would hold on each side and just sweep it through. The other term is for a smaller net that you would throw on a smaller catch. But he's saying, Babylon is just like a nation sweeping through, and all the peoples, all the nations are like these fish. There's no hope of escape. And he ends in verse 17 just asking God, is that how it's going to be? Is this proud and cruel and ruthless nation, are they just going to keep gathering up the other nations, emptying their nets and going back, taking over, slaying more? See, for Habakkuk, it just it didn't compute. This didn't make sense. He said, yes, God, I get that your people need to be corrected. I've been crying out for, for years about this. But you're going to use these godless pagans to do that? And then even bless them in the process. Notice it talks about, that's the picture here, that, that the Chaldeans are blessed and prosperous. And he's saying, I, I just don't get it. 
would kind of be like us today if as we cry out and we see all of the the state of the church in America, we see all the terrible things going on in, in our land, all the evil and wickedness, the violence, the injustice and all these things. And we cry out to God and, and then we, God says back, okay, I've been raising up ISIS and I'm going to bring them in your land to destroy, and punish you. How would we respond to that one? What? You got to be kidding me. Those guys, okay, things are bad here. We're pretty bad, but those guys are a lot worse than we are. They are cruel, ruthless. They've committed horrible atrocities. How could you use them? That's about the sense here of what Habakkuk's saying. How could you use those pagans, those people who hate you, who are terribly violent and cruel, and you're going to use them? Habakkuk was trying to reconcile these things. He's trying to reconcile what he knows about God with what God is doing. Remember again, Jeremiah, he cried out, Righteous are you, O Lord. Why is the way of the wicked prospered? Or the psalmist Asaph, he wrestled with this as well. Psalm 73, verse 1, he says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. He was wrestling with the same issue. And notice in both cases, Jeremiah talks about God is righteous. Asaph says here, God is good. And so like Habakkuk, that's, they can't get their minds around this. They know the character of God, that, but that he would bless the wicked, that he would allow them to prosper, that even those who oppose God, he would seemingly grant them favor. And not only that, but in Habakkuk's case, his struggles that he would also use them to punish his own people. I think all of us, we've wrestled with this. God's let certain things happen to us. Even maybe perhaps we've tried so hard to follow Christ, to submit to him. And yet others who don't have this comfortable life though they hate God. Maybe even some of those folks have committed terrible things against you. Maybe you're just trying to understand and struggling with why did God let this happen? God, how could you let that guy get the job over me? How come my child is wayward and I've been so diligent to to parent them and yet their children turned out okay and they've been pretty much negligent as parents? Why do I have these health problems when I've really tried to eat right and exercise? And that guy over there has done nothing for his health, but he's never been to the hospital. Why did my child die? Why did my parent die? And theirs lives. Why did you allow me to be raped, God? Why did you let me be cheated out of my savings? Why did you let me be so viciously slandered? And these are hard questions, but they're real ones. Just how do we reconcile what we know about God? How do we reconcile who he is and these things in his world that just don't make any sense? They don't seem to be consistent with God's character. They, they seem even to contradict it. Well, thankfully, we have our friend Habakkuk here. Habakkuk shows us 
some things. He's an example to us in what he did to, to resolve this tension in his own heart. Habakkuk has much to teach us. We'll see some things in the coming weeks. But this morning, I just want to look at his own example. Three things that we should do when faced with this troubling issue. And I can tell just this morning, the tone. There's some tension here, isn't there? This is hard. This is a hard topic. This is a difficult subject. And I know that many of you have gone through things and you've had this question. And just wondering... So what do we do with this? I'll bet many people have probably asked you this as well, haven't they? How could God? So let's look at Habakkuk and his example. The first thing that Habakkuk shows us what to do is bring your dilemma to God. That's what he's been doing this whole chapter. In fact, you know, it's it's kind of interesting. Here we have a prophet who's not said a word yet to us. So far, his only conversation has been with God. And the job normally of a prophet was to speak to the people, right? But he hasn't done that yet. His conversation is with God. And this shows us that he brings his struggles, his questions, his concerns, his dilemma to God. And he teaches us, don't just fret about these hard issues. Don't just throw up your hands and say, I I give up or say, well, that's just the way it is. You know how many times in God's word God allows for and seems like even encouraging his people to ask these kinds of questions? If God was afraid of these kinds of questions, we wouldn't see lots of verses that talk about them. We wouldn't have Habakkuk here. You know what, Habakkuk? Um, we're just going to shut things down right here. That, that question's a little bit beyond what I want to talk about. God doesn't do that. He wants to respond and give us answers so that we would understand And so Habakkuk shows us the way that we approach this is to go to him and to bring our dilemma before him, to bring our confusion, our concerns, our perplexities. And yeah, this may seem so basic. Talk to God about it. But how often do we talk about God and rarely talk to him, particularly on these very difficult issues? We see here that we need to bring our struggles, our difficult questions to God himself and then and ask him, show me the answer, Lord. Help me to see from your word. Give me understanding. We need to, to beg for that, beg that his spirit would open our eyes to understand, that he would illumine us. Pray to God that he would bring others alongside of you to help you understand or to come alongside with these difficult questions. But we need to, in humility and in honesty, and independence. Ask God. Come to Him. Second thing that we learn from Habakkuk is to remind yourself of God's character and particularly His relationship with you, your relationship with Him. Notice that's where Habakkuk in verse 12 starts. He just, as God had spoken to him, and and even though what God said to him left him even more confused, left him even more concerned, he had more questions But where did he begin? Notice in verse 12. He focuses on God's character. God, you're the eternal God. Holy, sovereign, faithful. You're a refuge. You're my God. This is so important to see this. Because we so often focus our attention on what we don't know rather than what we do know. Or who we know. And what we know about him. 
We get so caught up in why and how, and I don't understand, I don't understand. Instead of, but I know these things about God. And I know these things about my relationship with Him. That's the anchor, beloved. He has shown us all through His Word, He is holy. He's shown us very clearly of His love. How has God shown His love towards you? What's one way? Right? This is love, that He sent His only Son on your behalf. God didn't have to do that. The Father chose to allow His Son to suffer. Jesus Christ chose to become a man to suffer so that He might be the Redeemer of the lost. That's love. Because <laughs> we weren't exactly asking to be restored to God, were we? God came to us. He's revealed time and time again that He's compassionate and merciful. He's just. His justice is without question. And beloved, when God's world just doesn't make sense, when you see these things around you that don't seem right, you, you have to remember, you must Take yourself to this place. You must meditate on these things. Who is God? And what is my relationship to Him? This I know. That stuff I don't know. This I know. This is who I know. You know, as I was standing in that hospital room, man, I I struggle with this. I struggle with doubt and confusion. I I just, again, I, I can still see this little one. Still see her. I know exactly what she looks like. This was 10 years ago. And I remember in that moment, standing there, and those words from the nurse were rattling around in my head, and it hit me so hard, I was even questioning my faith at that point. Really, God? Really? I don't know. I'm just being honest here. But then, thankfully, truths came to my mind. But God, I know you are good. I know you know the end from the beginning i know that you are all wise i know that you are compassionate i know you're just i I just don't understand but i know this is true of you beloved brothers and sisters that that's the anchor because again remember we don't have the big picture we don't know we don't understand we are finite god what he's doing at every moment We can't comprehend these things. We don't know what purpose He has in each and every situation, in each and every life. But we do know this. We know in whom we have believed that He is able, that He is just. He's compassionate. He is. He's love. He's pure. He's wise. He can be trusted. Amen? Remind yourselves of these things. When these questions hit you like a flood, this is what you need to rehearse and meditate on. A third thing that Habakkuk shows us, it's actually seen in the first verse of chapter 2, which really should be part of chapter 1. After expressing his confusion and dismay at God's response, Habakkuk then says this in Habakkuk 2.1, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I'm reproved. Now Habakkuk is talking to us. He says, you know what? This is my struggle. The things I brought before God, what I'm going to do now, I'm going to go up to the watchtower and I'm going to wait. I'm going to watch. See, in that moment, he had these doubts, these questions. 
confusion, he had a choice. He had two roads to take, one of two roads. One was either to allow these doubts and questions to drive him away from God. The other was to grow his faith in God. And because of what he reminded himself to be true about God, back in verse 12, Habakkuk thankfully chose the latter. And in his response here, in Habakkuk 2.1, he teaches us a third thing, and that is to wait, to go wait in your watchtower. Now, I realize now I've got to be careful with that term, not the watchtower. <laughs> guard post. Let me use that one. I'll make it more clear, less confusing. Go to your guard post. And whether Habakkuk actually went to a guard post and they had these stationed around various fortified cities to watch for a coming enemy, whether he actually went and did that or he was just speaking of this in a figurative way to, to emphasize an, an alertness and a patience that he was going to exhibit, we can't be sure. But the point is clear here. He has handed his dilemma to God and now he's going to wait for an answer. I like what Martin Lloyd-Jones said reflecting on this. He said, Once we have taken a problem to God, we should cease to concern ourselves with it. We should turn our backs upon it and center our gaze upon God. But what so frequently happens is this. We go on our knees and tell God about the thing that is worrying us. We tell him that we cannot solve the difficulty ourselves, that we cannot understand, and we ask him to deal with it and to show us his way. Then the moment we get up from our knees, we begin to worry about the problem again. Now, if you do that, you might just as well have not prayed. If you take your problem to God, leave it with God. Get up into your watchtower and just keep looking up to God. End quote. It's exactly what Micah did. Remember when we were in Micah and he was facing the same kind of struggles that that Habakkuk was and he was talking about the sin going on around him and he brought that dilemma to God and just in struggling with it. And then he says this in Micah 7, 7. But as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. And so too Habakkuk says, I, I too, I'm going to keep watch and I'm going to see what God says about it, what he does about it. And indeed, God will bring a solution. Sometimes that solution will be a direct and obvious answer. Sometimes that solution will, will come in the form of a settled peace, even when no answer comes. And sometimes that solution comes in the form of there's no answer right now. You're going to need to wait. That's probably the one we like least of all. But either way, we leave it with God. I like how Martin Lloyd-Jones says, you turn your back on it. (laughs) He doesn't mean to just stop praying about it. But what he's saying is don't continue to fret and brood and be struggling with it. You know what? I've told God about it. I've given it to him. I'm going to leave it there in his hands. That's exactly what our Savior did in the garden, didn't he? He was wrestling with what was in front of him. You remember what he said, right? If this, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But not, not my will, but what did he say? But your will. Your will be done. Christ brought his dilemma before the Father. And then he put himself in the hands of the Father. And listen, if if Jesus trusted God to that extent, then so too should we. Let's pray. Well, Lord, this is um, a difficult issue. It's a troubling issue. There's one, Lord, that we 
I know, we all face, we all have questions about, we've been asked by others questions about, Lord, people have used this whole issue to impugn you and to reject you and, Lord, to speak terrible things about you that are not true. Father, we we still, we struggle with this. We, we don't understand and we desire that. Lord, we want to know how to respond when we see just horrible things that taking place in your creation. And Lord, especially those times we see these things and we're struggling with doubt, uncertainty. Lord, I thank you for this book. I thank you for Habakkuk. I, I thank you, Lord, that you have given us a place we can go in your word and and see how to wrestle through this issue. And I pray, God, as we look to this book further, that, Lord, you would give us understanding, that you would give us a settled peace, confidence, a trust in you. Thank you for Habakkuk's example, Lord, to bring this dilemma before you and leave it in your hands and, and then wait and trust you. Focus his attention on who you are. And help us to do that, Lord. We have many things in our lives that, God, we just don't understand and and are hard for us. I pray, God, for any here, Lord, who may be in a circumstance that they don't see a way out. They don't understand why you've let it happen. They, They are struggling, Lord, to see your goodness in it. And I pray, God, that you would comfort them with with who you are, Lord, that you would comfort them with the knowledge that you have a plan and you're carrying out that plan. And the end of that plan is a... Lord, is a wonderful thing that the exaltation of Christ and, and His glory and that we can be a part of that. And God, work in us a greater understanding of who You are. We thank You for Your Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. What a gift. It's in His name we pray. Amen.